Welcome back, guys, to the JPS Podcast. And on today's episode, we have Dr. Mike Isratel and Dr. Eric Helms, PhD, on the show to discuss program design and periodization for hypertrophy. They outline their thoughts, ideas, and interpretations on how to best structure a training program for maximal muscle growth, as well as discuss periodization and the long-term planning of training and whether or not it is indeed necessary or beneficial uh, for trainees looking to maximize muscle growth, to overreach their training and to have deliberate phases to resensitize uh, to the strength endurance or hypertrophy type training stimulus. So guys, this one is an awesome episode with many, many valuable uh, insights into two juggernauts of the industry uh, and their opinions on hypertrophy training. And if you want to see Eric and Mike in the flesh presenting on such topics, make sure you check out the Ultimate Evidence-Based Conference in June 2018 in Melbourne that JPS are hosting. I'll link details to that in the description box below. Without further ado, I present to you the Hypertrophy Program Design and Periodization Roundtable. All right, welcome guys to a very unique episode of the JPS podcast. And this is our first roundtable discussion, uh, although I doubt that three people is uh, sufficient to qualify for a roundtable, uh, with Eric Helms and Mike Isratel. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Not a problem, guys. And today I wanted to discuss programming and periodization for hypertrophy with the two juggernauts themselves. It's a hot topic at the moment in the evidence-based community. Mm -hmm. And whilst Mike and Eric are putting out a ton of great information uh, pertaining to both these concepts, uh, there seems to be a lot of confusion and disconnect uh, between how people are interpreting uh, programming and periodization and then how we are applying that in practice. So hopefully today, uh, this episode will give you guys an insight into why Mike and Eric are probably not in a disagreement as much as what many of you may be thinking, and then hopefully we can start to further our understanding of how we set up a training program, progress it, and structure it over a long-term period uh, to maximize muscle growth. So many people will see, uh, like I said, Eric and Mike on completely different ends of the spectrum, and I often see in the forums, you know, people saying, oh, well, Mike says this, but Eric says that. And, you know, there's only really a few minor differences in how they approach things. And as I discussed, they are in agreement with a lot of uh, the areas related to setting up a training program for hypertrophy. So we're going to discuss that today and hopefully, uh, yeah, bridge the gap between what people are perceiving to be their approach on these things. So no debates here, no heated discussions or overhyped marketing. I simply want this episode to be informative, educational, and get the guys to outline how they uh, approach things uh, without any heated discussion, hopefully. So Eric, we're going to start with you. That's not exciting, is it, guys? 
No, Mike. No, Mike, I'm going to start with just saying that I hate Mike Isretel and he's wrong about everything. Just because, just to get it heated, because I, I don't like the way you intro that. I, I think we need more debate in the world. I don't ever understand what Eric is saying. Is it command of the English language is insufficient for me to register? Um, he speaks so slowly, probably because of his low uh, general intelligence, that I just, I just tune out as soon as he starts talking. Mm. <laughs> there we go. Now we got a good start. That's a good start. I'll, I'll make sure that we we can use that. If as you a... could tell Mike what I just said, I'd appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make sure I use that as some intro clip with uh, some motivational and inspirational music on the background to to gauge interest in this discussion. But no, guys, I know you've both done quite an extensive amount of work on each of these topics, and I'm going to be linking uh, in the description box below all of their prior content uh, related to program periodization so you guys uh, can see firsthand you know, what we're talking about here. Um, but yeah, let's kick things off with you, Eric. Let's talk about programming. If you can outline what it is, how we best approach it for hypertrophy, and the primary concepts related to program design for muscle growth. Take it away. All right. This will be about a two-hour brief brief discussion, but uh, yeah. So, so resistance training programming for hypertrophy uh, comes down to the same, I think, basic principles as training for anything else, and that's that you have to set up the big picture variables of volume, intensity, and frequency appropriately, and then you have to make sure that it is specific to the goal of hypertrophy, and then of course you need to induce overload and have that be progressive over time if you want to keep growing. Um, I suspect there'll be zero disagreement on that statement between Mike and I, and I think a lot of the perceived differences between us really come down to how you apply the minute variables or the, the real-time variables to those principles. So anyway, um, what we know based on the, the best data, kind of where I would start with like home base for a, a bodybuilding program or a hypertrophy program based on the highest quality data, like meta-analytic data that's come out in the last few years and really stuff that's been around since, I'd say, Warren Baum 2007, is you want to be training each muscle group at least twice per week. Um, any less than that, and you're typically just not being as efficient with your time spent training each muscle group. Um, you want to be doing an appropriate amount of volume, which broadly probably is somewhere around the range of about 10 sets or more per body part uh, per week. And that's 10 plus sets could be anywhere from 10 to infinity. But typically I find in my practical experience and from the, the research that has kind of investigated the upper end of where you start to see a decline in, uh, in hypertrophy or even not growing because you're doing way too much, uh, probably in the range of 10 to 20 sets per body part covers most people uh, at most training ages. Uh, as far as intensity, uh, there's two ways to look at intensity, both intensity of load and intensity of effort. So we'll typically discuss intensity of load as a percentage of 1RM, or the actual weight on the bar, uh, relative to what you can actually lift. Uh, and then uh, intensity of effort, probably the easiest way to describe it is RPE, or how far from failure you are, using the RIR-based scale, uh, which is part of my, my work that I've, I've done in research. Um, and I would say that in for hypertrophy training, effort is probably more important uh, in that you can achieve fiber recruitment and training stress and there and subsequent hypertrophy at almost any load from the research we've seen so long as you train with sufficient effort. So then there becomes practical concerns about does it make sense to be doing sets of 50 uh, or does it make sense to be doing 50 clusters of singles, 90% of 1RM, 
and you can see that there are downsides practically to going to either end of the spectrum. So for the most part, it makes sense to be staying in the moderate uh, rep ranges uh, in terms of loading zones. So probably most of your work should be in the 6 to 12 range with some work maybe in the 4 to 6 range and some work in the 15 plus range, um, depending on stuff like individual joint stresses um, and uh, preference and specific movements just not really lending themselves towards high reps or low reps. So that kind of covers the intensity side of it, the frequency side of it, and the volume side of it. And then as far as how do you progress that over time, the key variable associated with muscle growth is volume. So big picture, not with workout to workout, not week to week, not even necessarily mesocycle to mesocycle, depending on your training age. We should see a progression of volume over time as needed when plateaus occur. And I think for the most part, that covers all of the big picture principles uh, for hypertrophy that I can think of at the moment. Yeah, Mike, you raised your hand then. Did you? Yeah, let me just point something that? out. <clears throat> yeah, you know, that was fine. Mm -hmm. Let me just point something out. <laughs> Eric, you slipped up and I got you because here's why. You said the 6 to 12 range is productive, the 4 to 6 range is productive, and the 15 plus range. Quote, Eric Helms says he hates sets of 13 or 14 reps, end quote. I'm right. That's accurate. That is accurate. Well, A, 13 is unlucky. <laughs> and 14, you're just not working hard enough because you should have done 15. So. Exactly. Uh, actually, I agree with that. Now uh, we can continue. <laughs> awesome. And Mike, is there anything else you want to discuss in terms of <clears throat> program design, setting up a microcycle uh, to what Eric has stated then? Man, you know, I think that, uh, you know, as predicted, Eric's uh, summary of the general trends is excellent. And um, I think that not only is the summary excellent, but I think a really big take-home point from that is whatever details you want to include in your program, uh, and if you are starting to really overthink, maybe, maybe, I, I'm, I'm not sure I like the term overthink, I take that back. If you're really starting to think deeply about the details, the precise... You know, how how much do you jump uh, relative or absolute load per microcycle? How long should your mesocycles be? Things like that. Um, I think if you're starting to really rack your brain over that stuff, just come back to that uh, five-minute talk Eric just gave and, and see if whatever you have as a good idea checks off all of those basics. If it does, if you like come see Eric and I at a conference, which will be happening in Australia in, uh, in uh, mid-June, by the way. Shaky um, plug. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, so uh, if you come to us at a conference and you describe your sort of method of progression and it checks off all of those boxes that Eric basically outlined, him and I just kind of look at each other, going to look at you and we're going to be like, that sounds great. And we can always give like sort of our preferences or theoretical considerations or maybe one situation is a little bit more optimal, one's a less optimal. Him and I may very well even disagree on those things. Mm. But we can't ever say that that stuff is very important. And as long as you're hitting those basics, man, a lot of that stuff ends up being some combination of sort of like theoretical kind of, uh, you know, exceptions and combined with individual preferences mm -hmm. and individual constraints. Like if you're intermediate lifter, maybe there's some good, better progression if you're advanced, if you're a beginner. But there's no way that you can progress if you don't cumulatively accumulate overload over time. There's no way you can progress if, if you're not attending to a sufficient amount of volume, if your reps in reserve are too low. Those are the big picture things. And I think a lot of individuals, when they ask really particular questions, 
tend to have missed some, some of them. So, for example, a question I'm sure Eric has received about a trillion times is, quote, what do you think of German volume training? <laughs> I mean, it's a really easy answer. Him and I would probably give the identical one. Uh, I'm not going to speak for him, but my answer would be, you know, it, it gives you one volume. Your best response volume may be under that. It may be that exactly if you're really lucky, or it may be over that. So because volume response is a range and not a single number, it's already kind of got a fatal flaw in it. So maybe not. don't do it verbatim. But uh, you see, we, we, we derive our information from principles. And so long as you're doing well by the principles, man, the rest of the stuff really isn't that super uh, important. Yeah, exactly right. And that's what we wanted to start this conversation with was – the, the principles uh, that underlie the methods such as German volume training. And Eric, you've obviously out, outlined the big rocks, those low-hanging fruits in volume, frequency, intensity as they relate to program design. Um, I guess an important uh, training variable is also uh, exercise selection. Eric, do you want to hit us off with the exercises that we should be selecting uh, if hypertrophy is the goal? Do we need a squat, bench, deadlift? You know, what is going to be you know, in our best interests for the number of exercises, the type of exercises, taking into consideration, you know, what we need to tick off in terms of the hypertrophy, uh, you know, boxes. For sure. Um, and I, I would say, I, I agree with everything Mike said, that um, there's, like, you can set things up and tick all those boxes that, that he discussed and have it be not perfect, and it's still pretty damn good. You know, because you got all that in order. And, and a lot of that is little practical things you'll figure out. Like, what if you decide to always train to failure, but you still meet all those requirements? That would work. And hell, that's actually what most bodybuilders start off doing. But they start to run into issues. Like, man, I seem to get really beat up when I do these exercises with this training intensity all the time. Or, man, I really struggle to actually train my legs twice a week. I can do it, but maybe there's a better way. That's just one example of many or, or different types of progression schemes or deload frequencies or lack of deloads. All that stuff will come into play and you'll realize for individuals in certain situations that doesn't really make sense or that's not optimal or here's some general guidelines. But that stuff is all secondary to those big rocks. Um, and I'm glad you brought up exercise selection because obviously all of those big rocks are going to be expressed through movement. And I would say... Um, the exercise selection is very important and I would probably include it in the big rocks. Um, but it's one that is probably more affected by individual differences, schedule and equipment availability than other things. So that's why I typically place it behind a discussion of those big, big rock, uh, aspects, because you're going to have to sort that out for yourself to some degree based on your movement competency, your desires and equipment uh, that you have available to you. So I tend to speak in movement patterns, if you will, and then kind of big, big picture stuff as this is going to be consumed by a lot of people. Um, and for the most part, we know that the compound movements are more efficient at training muscle in general because they train more muscle at once. And our body, as much as we as bodybuilders talk about um, training styles and focuses based on muscle groups, uh, there is no such thing as isolation. It is incredibly difficult to actually contract just one muscle in your body. Uh, and for the most part, um, our, that's why internal cueing is typically not very useful for teaching movement. You teach someone an outcome and they figure out the most efficient way to get there. So it can make sense so long as someone's not injured and they're performing something correctly to focus on movement patterns as ways of training large masses of muscle. And then you can do fine tuning as you get more experience and with more isolation and shifting the priorities and the, the minute performance of lifts. So with that huge caveat intro, 
I would say that it's probably not a bad idea to include a horizontal push and pull, a vertical push and pull. So examples of those could be bench or dumbbell press, dumbbell row, seal row, overhead press, dumbbell shoulder press, lat pull down chins. Uh, you probably want some type of squat pattern. And I say squat very broadly. That could be a leg press. That could be a machine hack squat. That could be a single leg squat pattern, like a lunge uh, or a Bulgarian split squat. That could be a front squat, back squat, uh, safety bar squat, etc. But one that is basically doing simultaneous knee and hip extension through as full a range of motion as you can do without rounding your lumbar and losing position and having your heels come off the floor. Um, you probably want a hip hinge, which is similar but not the same as a squat in which you're focusing primarily on hip extension versus knee extension. So you're getting more of a focus on the hamstring and glutes versus the glutes and quads as you would in a squat. Uh, and then you, because we're talking about bodybuilding, you probably want to do some calf raises. Um, <laughs> but if you include all of those six things in your program, you're probably good to go. Would I also include some isolation movements like bicep curls, tricep pushdowns, you know, a face pull, lateral raise, leg extension, leg curl? Absolutely. However, they're definitely not absolute requirements but you run into problems if you don't include them because if you're trying to get to the number of sets per muscle group per week that is appropriate and then progress over time and you're limiting yourself to only doing squats and deadlifts well ask any powerlifter what it's like to try to do 10 sets of squats in a week and 10 sets of deadlifts or some combination of the two it's very difficult and even they typically except in some very extreme specificity camps include some other movements like a good morning it's a pretty common one um, a, a different squat variation, very common, etc. So while the compound barbell lifts are very effective for training large groups of muscle at once, uh, and from an efficiency standpoint, they're also typically higher risk movements, and they incur a larger amount of fatigue per unit. doesn't mean they shouldn't be used. It just means that maybe instead of, like if your goal is to get six sets of quad movements in this leg workout, maybe three squats and three leg extensions is a good idea versus six sets of squats. Um, so again, you know, from a strength perspective, yeah, you can make an argument of doing more and more squats and figuring out a way to, to change the load, frequency, and volume of each set to make it as minimally fatiguing as possible while getting lots of practice on the movement. But for hypertrophy, you need to be competent, not an expert at these movements. And then you need to induce overload. So it probably makes sense to split up your movements more than, say, a powerlifter would or a weightlifter. Yep, fantastic. Not all volume is created equally. Mike? Is there anything you want to add to that? Well, that was a really good summary. Um, I would just add a couple. Of, I mean, this is literally an addition. I think Eric's thought was very complete. The, but uh, just some things that I would sort of make sure are uh, <laughs> are um, communicated is, uh, and he did mention the range of motion, but I think for all exercises, a fuller range of motion is usually best so long as safety is maintained that I think a large range of motion can actually maintain safety because it reduces the need for external load and the chance of something bad happening. And also, um, a, uh, sticking to the good technique of the movement pattern and, and sort of internal movements of muscles and tendons so that you're not, um, uh, doing things that are both some combination of dangerous and no longer affecting the muscle that you want. So, for example, lateral raises. I just posted a lateral raise video, and it two, uh, two thirty five two thirty five pounds for ten. Uh, one thirty five. One thirty. 
how, how much was it? It was like 35. There was a 35 on the end. I've, I've watched it just before. <laughs> Man, that, you know, if I, I think it was 60 pound dumbbells, which would be like, dumbbells. yeah, which would be like 27 and a half per hand, I think. Yeah, something so. like that. So, so 60 pound dumbbells, 60 pound dumbbells. out of 10. Mm-hmm. I misread that. And definitely yeah, a five at the end, though. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, um, you know, one of the questions actually by a former student of mine is purely theoretical in his case, not theoretical in most other people who ask it, is what about if you did some cheat reps and did five more lateral raises cheaty afterwards so you could have gotten 15? Well, where is the energy to cheat coming from primarily? Oh, hip musculature. Am I there to train hip musculature? No, that's the next day and my hips would just be more tired. Thus, And, and remember the um, the intensities that we're working with when you're generating momentum for lateral raises at the hip musculature, those intensities are highly submaximal. There was, there was something that my colleague James Hoffman would refer to as junk volume, just enough to wear down the fatigue, but not stimulative in any sense. Yeah. So you're just more tired for the next day for hip stuff, but you're not growing your hip musculature anymore. So the next question is, so why are you using your hips to sort of rocket your side delts? Well, then the answer is I want to take them even further into that failure proximity, maybe even beyond failure and have them contract uh, when they can no longer produce enough force to lift the absolute load. Well, why not just put the 60s down, rest for 30 seconds, and do five more reps strict, still safe, still get the another round of failure or close to failure training, Yahoo, or better still, if it's phase appropriate, just uh, put the 60s down, take the 30s out uh, right after and do another eight to 10 or whatever strict any, I've had this debate with so many people. I can't. I don't want to count. Uh, every time somebody tries to justify cheating, it becomes uh, incrementally more clear to me every time that they're just trying to justify cheating. Uh, I, I, I've never spoken to anyone whom I either respect intellectually or am charitably open-minded about in respecting intellectually. So I, I, I don't, uh, you know, so face value respect them, but maybe they have something to offer. I've never spoken to anyone of any good rationale for cheating. Um, I am incredibly skeptical of another concept, which is a little bit more fine-grained type of stuff. But um, people talk about this new thing. People talk about the active range of motion of a muscle. Like bodybuilders will justify why they're not touching a bar to their chest when they bench press because it's no longer the active range of motion and the pecs are no longer active or some shit like that. Or they'll, like, justify half leg press reps because I don't feel my quads anymore. I think there, there's, uh, there's a case to be made for some of that stuff, but by some, I mean like 2%, and 98% is just pure fuckery, for lack of a better term. Mm. Is that okay if I swear on this podcast? Yeah, of course. Was, of course. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, just a, a sort of a dedication to full range of motion and to what I can only, only refer to as strictness of technique. Um, is the technique – now, that, there's very many different kinds of technique. You can squat with a wider stance and a narrower stance. Neither one of those is wrong. They just sort of target slightly different muscles or even many of the same ones. But whatever technique you're doing, be consistent with it and be strict. The strictness keeps it safe and effective to the muscle. And the consistency of technique day-to-day, week-to-week, allows you to properly progress and overload. So, for example, bent-over barbell rows, probably the, the most abused bodybuilding exercise. I always do my rows touching the barbell to the ground, not swinging at all, touching it to my tummy. And I do it from the same height every time. Or if I'm altering the height, I'm noting what the height is. So, for example, if I stand on a plate or use smaller plates, I'll note that. Why? Because I need to know that the absolute loading I'm doing is more than it was last week or last month or last year. If I start moving around and uh, hip-hopping or doing, you know, like the funky chicken or whatever the hell people do when they try to bent row, 
I can no longer guarantee that I'm overloading the musculature that I want. So people are like, took 405 for a ride today in the bent row. Like, motherfucker, are you giving rides to weights? What is this? Like, you have a fee? Are you operating a roller coaster? Like, you're trying to lift to target the muscles. So be strict. And, and there's no shortage of big bodybuilders that aren't strict. There's also no shortage of injured bodybuilders that did the wrong things mm -hmm. all the time and got hurt a ton. Uh, so people will be like, but what's his name does it? Not, not a very uh, good case of reasoning. So one of the big things I try to preach is everything Eric said. And then on top of that, kind of like a personal dedication to keeping the technique strict and specific to the muscle. It doesn't mean we try to overly isolate. Some people say, like, I shrug my shoulders at the top of a lateral raise too much, and apparently I'm just taking away everything from my side delts. I don't know how it's conceivably possible to adduct your arm without uh, – or abduct your arm uh, without losing the side delts. But, um, you know, there is definitely something like overkilling the, the uh, isolation stuff. But I think even in a squat, et cetera, you got to make sure the movement is designed to target the musculature you're targeting. Be honest. Go through a full range of motion. Don't use crazy momentum. And then you're just going to be able to program better, stay safer, hit the muscle better, and know when you've progressed. Like I know for a fact my quads have to be bigger than they used to be because my reps at a high bar squat, which is, I've been doing in identical fashion for 10 years, have gone up and so has the weight. There's just no, and, and I also know the direction. Like if I want really much bigger quads, I'm, something's going to have to move on those reps and that weight. If you're never consistent with exercise execution, you're in for injuries and you're in for just not really knowing if you're hitting PRs or not. Yeah, awesome. I think uh, exercise selection uh, needs to take into account, like Eric was saying, you know, individual structure, function, and then we need to standardize uh, technique, range of motion, and all of those factors. And you guys started to tie in with what I guess is the, the next variable uh, that we need to discuss in programming, and that is progressive overload. So you know, in discussing this, we need to assume now that people have selected exercises that they can perform safely and effectively, they're executing them appropriately, you know, distributing the external load uh, accordingly to the target muscle groups. Then when we apply overload, Eric, kick us off for hypertrophy. How do we best approach that? Yeah, so uh, the way I like to, well, first I just want to say I completely agree with what Mike said. And um, his description Boring. of, I know, <laughs> I just found it really funny because I, I recently posted a uh, bent over barbell video, like an instructional video and things to look out for. And he literally described the comment section. Uh, it was a bunch of people who, you know, appreciated it and liked it and other people who were like, well, what about insert name of big bodybuilder or powerlifter who does cheat rows? And I'm like, that's not an argument. Like, what, what do you, like, I know people who do it strict. Like, what, what do you, what, what's the point? Uh, and then everything he said, it's, it's, um, yeah, there's the partials, maybe, you know, like partials, I could see if, if you're going to extend a set or maybe if you're trying to tr train strength at a specific joint angle. Sure, because we know that's specific to joint angle. But for hypertrophy, we know that full range of motion tends to be more effective. Um, and I think full range of some... motion, sorry to just say, you know, jump in on that. I work with a lot of people as well, and I, I know this is a discussion for you guys, but, you know, a lot of people who don't have, you know, sufficient thoracic extension or shoulder mobility can't, you know, bench press to the chest safely. So full range of motion for them is going to be something completely different for somebody who does have, you know, quite good range um, and, you know, mobility and Excellent. stability through the thoracic and the control of the scapula uh, while they're benching. So I think that's an important uh, caveat to, you know, the arbitrary term range of motion before you continue, yes. Eric? I think it's absolutely critical. I'm glad you said it. Yeah. When I say full range of motion, I mean the full range of motion you have without mm -hmm. compensation. 
So, for example, if you squat high and someone's like, oh, you pussy, and then, like, they want you to squat deeper, and you squat deeper and you come onto your toes and your lower back rounds, that was a poor decision. Like, you just let, you let some asshole on, on, on YouTube redu- increase your injury risk. Like, you should squat with the range of motion you have, and if the YouTube warriors come out, just be like, yeah, what if I squat deeper in my back rounds? And then they'll have an internal combustion moment because then they're not supposed to round your back, but you're supposed to squat deep, and they can't think except in binary. So you will just have killed one person through a brain hemorrhage who was not contributing to society. So good job. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I would say, yeah, you always want to train train with the range of motion you have, not with the one you don't. I think is, is typically the, the thing I say. So well said. Um, so, yeah, uh, the, the question about progressive overload, that is often where the discussion becomes a little more nuanced. Um, and I think. So many people associate progressive overload with increasing the weight on the bar that that becomes that load progression becomes a synonym for that. And I think it's important to step away from that. You know, progressive overload uh, does not have to come from load progression. And it is probably not even necessary. It's a necessary but not primary way to drive hypertrophy because it's not about necessarily the load on the bar. Um, That's an indicator that you've grown. Because like Mike said, if your form is held static and if you are doing the movement two years down the line and you can do more load from more reps across more sets, it's probably the best indicator we have that you are indeed getting bigger, uh, besides the fact that actually looking and going on bigger. Um, but uh, from a performance perspective, that's that's how you measure it, uh, especially when you're advanced and you don't have uh, the ability to see visual progress like you did in the first six months to a year of you training seriously. So uh, I think Brian Miner said this really well in an article he recently wrote. Uh, your ability to add weight to the bar is an outcome of previous progressive overload, not a requirement for future progressive overload. So I think for, for, for hypertrophy, you just need to set up your training such that you are challenging the muscle further. Uh, and there's a lot of ways to do that. I mean, people have talked about decreasing rest interval and increasing the density of training. That's all the way back with Vince Garanda and then again with Charles Staley, uh, and other people who have contributed to our field, people have talked about just adding more sets. Um, you know, like I think, I don't want to speak for Mike, but uh, one of the ways he operates in a volume phase, like if you're using that kind of terminology from block periodization, is adding sets starting from kind of like the minimum effective amount of volume you found for yourself up towards what you know is the maximum as a way of creating progressive overload within a mesocycle. And that's what I would classify as a very volume-focused method of getting progressive overload. Um, what I often do, not that I always do, but it's one that I find is intuitive and useful um, with uh, a progressive uh, mesocycle is to use a bit of a linear approach where you start with a fixed number of sets and you will see the reps go down week to week while the load goes up. That's just a basic linear progression. If, you, if, if, if we're talking linear periodization where volume goes down and load goes up. Uh, however, I'm always with the caveat that when that stops working, uh, then you need to add more sets, add more exercises, or do something to increase volume. So that when you look at it and you back up far enough, when you look at an athlete's career or a macro cycle, not just a mesocycle, while each mesocycle might step down slightly in volume, overall, the steps start higher each time. So it's kind of like this. So it's this undulating across weeks pattern that eventually goes up in terms of volume as needed when someone plateaus. So in both cases, you know, that is a volume progression. It's just what's the time scale? You know, um, so I don't think that any one of those is more appropriate than another. However, certain exercises 
it makes more sense to do one versus the other. Like for example, uh, bicep curl, you might only add 30 pounds to your dumbbell bicep curl over your entire training career. So if you train for 30 years, how are you going to track a one pound gain of strength per year? Not that all of it happens at that pace. You know, you, you might go from a 20 pound bicep curl for 10 to a 35 pound bicep curl for 10 in your first year. And then from then on, you, you slowly get to 50, you know, for 10 reps, strict reps, once you're Captain America version of yourself. But you can't track that. So you can't, oh, I'm going to drop three ounces and load this week and, 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 and uh, go up in reps or something you like that. You can if so, you're Menno. You can if you're Menno. It's true. Yeah, he takes a little chisel and just tacks off a little bit of the metal. And he has to get a new pair of dumbbells. But it's whatever. He's moving the next month anyway. So the gyms hate him. Yeah. But uh, so, yeah, uh, you, you, can, you can use like a, uh, a double or even triple progression strategy there where you're adding reps. Say like you're trying to get three sets of eight the first time you use a load, and then you work all the way up to three sets of 15. Once you can do three sets of 15, then you jump the load and you try to get three sets of eight again. Uh, you can even do that with sets and reps. So you can go three to five sets, eight to 15. And once you can get five sets of 15, you start back over with three sets of eight. That can become problematic. Sometimes the volume then drops too low to make progress, but there's a ton of ways to like extend uh, progress of microloading, not just load, like the little magnet weights, but also uh, reps and volume over time. So it's really just about fitting the right progression strategy to your training age, the movement, and then the amount of volume that you will have to accumulate, or I should say the amount of training stress you should have to accumulate. You'll have to think about managing that because you may be having to do a lot to progress, especially if you're relatively advanced. Then you have to think about deload frequency, uh, managing distance from failure, uh, setting up a training configuration within a week and within a mesocycle so that recovery is occurring while you're still inducing the same amount of stress. Um, and that's where the, the devil is definitely in the details. You know, that's why we discuss things like a daily undulating focus where you have a hard day, a recovery day where you're still doing useful volume, and then a, another hard day or something like that. Uh, or using recovery strategies like I know Mike and Hoffman have talked about in their recent book. And then looking at uh, deload frequency, how to deload, all that stuff. And I think there's not one right answer there. It's it's more having a, a very large tool belt and looking at what's the appropriate way to use them in different uh, individuals and situations. Yeah, awesome. Mike, anything you want to add? Yeah, so, you know, we can take this opportunity to get a little bit more specific um, in recommendations. And <clears throat> so... Uh, you know, the following are just sort of my best guesses, uh, my reading of the literature and uh, personal experience, experience of clients, et cetera, and some, uh, some, some logical inferences. Um, so just diving in a little bit deeper, I think that the overall most important thing is that the magnitude of the stimulus should probably increase in most loading microcycles. Like, um, you know, that can happen through a variety of ways. Like Eric described, it can happen from an increase in load on the bar. It can happen from an increase in volume, just set numbers. It can happen from an increase in repetitions. And it can happen um, from an increase uh, from a stability in most of those, but an increase in uh, relative intensity. So uh, closer to failure, you start to, um, the, the magnitude of stimulus becomes greater as you approach closer to failure, even if the absolute values haven't changed much. The recruitment of various fibers, the extent 
of potentially the extent of damage that is done, um, and, and essentially the magnitude of the stimulus that says, hey, something needs to change, usually goes up as you increase the relative intensity. So whatever way you tend to make things harder, things have to get harder over uh, successive microcycles. Uh, what variables you go about uh, changing to make them harder, I think, is, is very much a secondary thing. A really big problem is if the stuff is not getting harder over the, the, the course of your mesocycle, um, you know, then you, you're up to the so sort of theoretically rationalizing why you don't think the overload principle applies on a microcycle to microcycle scale. It's a tough sell because, you know, the, you kind of have to do more to get more. Now, that being said, I am um, definitely uh, a fan of two modes of progression for sure. And uh, I, th I tend to push those more for reasons. One reason why I can't get away from prescribing an incrementally higher amount of volume with each microcycle by like volume progressions, e even if they happen by just adding weight to the bar um, or if they happen by adding set numbers or maybe even reps. Um, although I'll talk about the reps in a second as a, maybe a little bit of a complexity I wouldn't recommend. Um, I think that uh, because volume has been demonstrated to be such a huge driver of hypertrophy, there's so well correlated hypertrophy. Um, I, I, I think that the sort of my default hypothesis is that we should probably increase volume every microcycle because it probably has a good deal of stimulus to hypertrophy. Now, does that have to happen? Absolutely not. As long as over the long term your volume is increasing, I think you're doing a great job. But uh, my suspicion in my first sort of course of events is to probably increase the volume every microcycle by some amount, as I as I think that's likely stimulative, not just reflective of abilities. Um, the good thing about intensity or putting weight on the bar is that we definitely know that that uh, in incrementally raising the intensity is a very good, easy, objective way of increasing that stimulus that I was talking about. Second benefit is as long as your repetitions don't drop and your sets don't drop, as you increase intensity, you're actually increasing volume as well. That's a real good two birds with one stone sort of situation. The thing about increasing intensity is I think in a hypertrophy setting for sure, the increases have to be very small, something to the tune of several kilos per week, even on the bigger exercises. And here's why. I'm not a huge fan of um, altering rep ranges over the weeks by much. Um, one, one reason I'm not a huge fan is that that tends to alter volume a little too much, um, it, it, either too high up or too low. Um, uh, and another reason why I'm not interested in altering reps too much is I think that my long-term periodization strategy is sort of like, um, uh, takes, uh, kind of, uh, uh, one quality of musculature, for example, more slow twitch musculature or more fast twitch musculature, really hammers away at that for a while while keeping the other part of the muscle fiber percentage sort of stable and, and really sort of uh, operates on directed adaptation, right? We really hammer, 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 and then back off and then switch and start hammering something else. I think I, for that reason, I like to stay in a certain rep range for, uh, you know, a mesocycle or, in fact, uh, something that... Um, I ended up probably picking up from from uh, from uh, Eric and his ilk is maybe staking in that rep range for for several mesocycles um, in order to really capitalize on that specificity. God damn it, people, stop fucking texting me. Sorry, I'm, I'm on the iPhone doing this and it's just shit fucking sliding down. So I like to stick in a similar rep range. So kind of my my way of doing things, and I'm not saying this is the best way. I just I'm just offering this out 
is starting with you know, sort of uh, just just real generalities around 10 sets per muscle group per week and picking a repetition range that is productive for some kind of outcome. For example, the 6 to 10 rep range, which in, in my view targets a predominantly faster twitch fiber development. For you know, there's some exercise variability there. Like you're not going to lateral raise for sets of six, and you know you're not. But you might squat for sets of six, something like that, or sets of eight, etc. Um, you start there, and you add a little bit of weight every week to the bar, and every week you add one to three sets, depending on how your responses go, um, to the the, the movements. Of you may start with three sets of squats on a certain day, uh, right? Or a certain week, you start with 10 working sets, then you go to 12, then you go to 14, then you go to 16 to 18, then maybe you deload after accumulating a lot of fatigue. That's how I prefer to structure my mesocycle increases. And I think that very much checks all the boxes and doesn't sort of spill over into other problems like uh, if you're dropping, you know, repetition ranges by a lot, what's happening to your volume? Is your volume really increasing, et cetera? Not, not to say that I think volume increases are mandatory microcycle to microcycle, but I think it makes a pretty decent sense to at least give them a try. Um, and I think that uh, alternative forms of progression, uh, and mind you, by the way, uh, I think it's really important that uh, repetitions and reserve progress occur through those microcycles. But because you're increasing the volume and because you're increasing the intensity, there's really no way that that's not going to happen automatically, mm -hmm. right? You're automatically going to get closer and closer to failure until you're failing and then you deload and repeat, et cetera. Um, I think that uh, there are alternative ways of progression. Uh, specifically, these are really good for when you can't do something like that. So Eric's uh, excellent example of you know dumbbell work, like in lateral raises, which I'm doing in this mass cycle, I start with like, I said, uh, I do like one of my days of ladder raises is the 60s for 10, 9, 8 reps. That's it. Like set of 10, set of 9, set of 8. Next week, I'll do 11, 10, 9. Week after that, you know, 12, 11, 10, and I'll probably add a set and go 9, right? So four sets. I'm adding a fucking rep every time because yeah, I'm not going to be adding five pounds. It's pure nonsense. Or there's no way it's going to go anywhere. Just adding sets is good, but it offers not a huge relative intensity increase. Like I can keep adding sets forever and just dropping the reps all the time, doing sets of two at the end of 18 sets of lateral raises. It is a progression, but I think it's, um, you know, it, it's good to do that relative intensity as well as absolute volume progress. So sometimes you, you can't really add weight. Sometimes you'd be in a situation where, you know, and, and, and the reason I don't like to add repetitions all the time is because, again, we, we see an exit of rep range and a decrease in specificity. For example, if we started a mesocycle, and I'm not saying this has to be intent of a mesocycle, but if we start a mesocycle to keep it in the moderate volume range but really hammer the faster twitch fibers, if we start with sets of eight and just add reps, soon we're at sets of 12 to 15, and we're no longer preferentially targeting the kinds of muscle fibers where we should have gone for load increases. So, so that, that's why, and, and if you are targeting the slower twitch fibers, I think as long as you start at higher reps anyway, you sure as heck can add reps. I still prefer adding weight in that example because you're definitely hitting the slower twitch fibers at higher reps anyway, but that doesn't get you into what Eric and I actually discussed in another podcast is the real nasty he said practical. I would add theoretical problems of really high rep sets, uh, like sets of 30, uh, where Eric and I sort of in agreement that, you know, what the hell are the first 25 reps doing except for adding fatigue? Because they're just clearly not stimulative, right? You don't have to get to the last five reps to get any actual meaningful disruption done, any sort of stimulus, and you're just pissing away a lot of time. I would even go so far as to hypothesize that the fatigue to stimulus ratio in ultra high rep sets, like even pushing 30, 40, 50 reps, just doesn't make any damn sense. You might as well just lower the weight, have most of the reps be stimulative, 
so that because you know you're accumulating 45 reps of fatigue and then five reps of maybe 10 reps of stimulus at the end of that maybe not the best thing in the world so i would say even even at the slower twitch ranges at the higher rep ranges incrementally by a little bit increasing maybe reps and a combination of load but i still like load progressions at small frequency or small jumps because i think they're an easy way to track and they make sense and they keep that specificity really tight so that's kind of my general approach. And I absolutely vary that depending on needed situation, but I think it checks a lot of the boxes pretty well. Yeah. Awesome. Eric, is there, you know, anything you want to discuss further in terms of how Mike outlined his uh, methodologies for progression uh, over the course of a mesocycle? Yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of them are more like practical concerns. Like I, I do, I'm a little wary just because of how quickly volume starts stacking up with adding sets within a mesocycle, unless you start quite low, which I think uh, I don't want to misspeak for, for Mike, but I, I believe you've changed kind of the where you start and where you finish in terms of where the sets go. And I like the idea of starting at kind of where you think the minimum effective dose is and then building closer to where the the most effective is, not, not past it and overreaching. I think if you if you start with like a normal kind of bodybuilding approach and then start adding sets, that can go haywire pretty quick. Yeah, I always um, recycle when I, if I get a client, I, I don't coach a lot of clients anymore, but somebody like who uses a lot of the methodology that we discussed, uh, Jared Feather, for example, if he gets a client mm -hmm. who does the normal bodybuilding approach, he recycles the guy immediately. We're not just like, well, see what you're working with and let's go this way. If you're a real client, you go right back to what we estimate your minimum effective volume to be. And then we very slowly, only as needed, start increasing sets from there over a long time interval to get a feel for where your minimum effective volume really is, maximum recoverable, and we stay in that range. We sort of come up to that range, deload, come up to that range, deload, come up to that range, deload. Um, so yeah, I would absolutely, yeah, like if someone comes to me doing 20 sets of squats, I'm like, all right, 22, 24, 26, 28, <laughs> then you're going to die, but then you're going to be reborn 32, 38, the, <laughs> yeah so that's I, I, I that's more of almost like a like a just a public service announcement like you know what what he's saying makes sense but not if you're doing that so I think given how quickly volume accumulates when you add sets I tend to I there's like kind of two default ways that I will set up a plan for someone to progress and I think they're both totally valid and, and depends on the situation they're not the only ones I use but they tend to be my defaults is one where I set up a really solid microcycle with an appropriate amount of volume that I think is somewhere close to what I think is in the sweet spot and not doing too much and not doing too little. And then we make small progressions in reps and load as needed or as, as possible, staying within an RPE range, right? And then once we start to see I can't progress anymore or I'm actually going down a little bit or the RPEs have jumped up, that's a signal for a deload and that kind of an auto-regulated deload approach. Uh, where we're starting what we think is the ballpark of, of a good amount of volume, good number of exercises, sets, and then you're just trying to add weight or when not possible, add a little bit of load, or in some cases drop the, the rep slightly and add more weight. Um, I think there's, there's nothing wrong with having a little bit of auto-regulation in there depending on how your joints are feeling and just whether you feel strong or not or whether you feel like you can do a lot of volume. So there is some research showing that those, uh, the ability to, to do a lot of work or to lift heavy weights, they recover at different paces. Um, and then kind of deload on an auto-regulated basis. That is how I currently train. Um, but that A takes some objectivity, some experience, some body awareness, and understanding of RIR um, and how to accurately gauge it. A lot of it, a lot of um, training records and history to look back on, which I have quickly. I'm 
I'm probably unsurprisingly relatively analytical with my training. Um, and, and a good solid training partner too, which is in my case, my wife, who's seen me perform reps, seen how I act, has seen me outside of the gym as well to see if I'm hobbling around like an old man, or grumpy, all these types of things. And I can go, oh, what, what, do you, what do you think about this decision? So I don't often program like that unless I know the person well enough to know they're in a similar situation or have those same boxes ticked. And that's when I'll default more to, all right, we're going to have a regular deload schedule that we can modify or kick back. Um, and it's probably going to err a little bit on the side of conservative. And then we're going to start with, uh, you know, a fixed number of, of sets. And then we're going to manipulate load and reps over time. And then we're going to test. And if you've been able to improve your AMRAPs on our big six or whatever that I might be testing for, for a bodybuilder, you know, your vertical, horizontal, hip, all the movements I talked about earlier, spread out over a week. Um, great. If everything's improving, we don't need to change anything. And we'll rinse and repeat with increasing your maxes, which, like Mike said, will increase the total tonnage, uh, ensuring that you're still at an appropriate effort level with the same repetition schemes. Um, and then you, the time when I would increase volume and in terms of number, of, I should say the time when I would increase number of sets is when they're not progressing. And I, I it's across the board and a lot of movements, um, they're not feeling beat up anymore. They're, they're pretty well adapted to this level of workload. And then I go up from there. Um, I think the, the reason I trend towards that in my personal training is probably because I think like a scientist, I hold a lot of variables fixed. I want to make sure everything is systematically assessed. We have a, a test, a taper. All right, what improved? Tell me the conditions around your test. Was sleep in order, nutrition, all that stuff? How did you feel? Give me these variables. And all right, we didn't improve. We need to change something. Let's add more volume. And that's when you know the total and the number of sets might go up ten to twenty percent, depending on what happened. So I, I don't. I think all of the the, the progression methods that, that Mike and I have just stated, I think, have merit. And I would say. We don't know enough to say that any one of them has more merit than another, mm -hmm. um, but one of them more have may have more merit in an individual situation uh, or a individual based on their personal preferences, what equipment they have available, um, even their personality. Maybe they really like to push themselves so they're feeling absolutely wrecked. That maybe they would want to up the sets and deload more frequently, or maybe they're a little more conservative and they'd like to like they need to see their performance stay more stable. Maybe they take that kind of first approach I talked about where you're adding a rep here and there or a bit of load here and there and deloading when you really start to feel beat up, which takes more time with that kind of strategy. I think it depends on on the individual and what they like, which I think is a, actually more important than we give credit for in bodybuilding. I think we discussed that, Eric, back when you came down for 3DMJ uh, down under. That was you know, how individual psychology and like the, the personality types – you know, I've worked with people who are just absolute animals and they love, you know, the Israel approach where it's, you know, aggressive uh, application of overload via adding sets, deload more frequently because, you know, they have a, you know, lifestyle that is conducive to training hard, recovering um, and pushing it. Whereas a lot of other people who have a little bit more variability in terms of the social uh, and lifestyle factors influencing recovery and whatnot may tend to you know work better with a more you know, consistent uh, and slower rate of uh, overload. But Mike, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, oh, really, really good stuff. I, I do uh, I do agree, Jacob, with your last point. You know, like if 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 an individual can't reliably 
you know, the the increase in set numbers needed is a reliable uh, somebody who shows up to the gym every week. Mm. Same machines, all this other stuff. Otherwise, you just kind of shoot for the middle, <laughs> you know. So if you, you know, if you can consistently get in and bang away fifteen sets at whatever machines you find, if you travel a lot, et cetera, great. And just try to increase load over time. But um, if you're set in a set in stone, set in one place, then we work from ten to twenty, perhaps uh, mm. slowly. Um, I will say one thing that um, sort of an opportunity to see um, where Eric and I probably share the same or very similar approach to training. Is uh, and this is in the detailed in the volume landmarks book that I wrote with uh, Dr. James Hoffman for RP, talking about this MEV MRV nonsense, um, and uh, <laughs> this is like shit I made up. You know, <laughs> salt, salt marketing ploy that's making me no money. Um, so, so uh, one of the things we talk about is you know so so the difference between your minimum effective volume and your maximum recoverable, you know, genetic and other variables aside. It's super high when you start out training in your career. Uh, in your immediate, it gets a little smaller. When your advance is oh, really right. small. So people talk about like, well, you know, Dr. Israel, one of the most common questions I get on in- fucking Instagram, which doesn't fucking get me started on shit, um, you know, dildo lover 46 is like, how many sets should I go out <laughs> week? So, so it's like, that's a very common question. Yeah, dildos. <laughs> totally. Like, whatever, whatever makes you happy. Um, so... Um, you know, people will say, how many sets should I go up by per week? You know, my answer is roughly understand your minimum effective volume, roughly know how much is too much MRV, roughly understand how long you want your mesocycle progression to last, and then do some dividing, and there you go. And math. That's it. And then they're like, wait, math. And you're like, shit, I fucked that all up. I should have never said math. So <laughs> it could be that if you're a beginner and your minimum effective volume is around 10 sets, your maximum recoverable is around 20 sets. And let's say I actually advise beginners not to go to their MRV, mm. but let's say you're going to 18, that's 10, 12, 14, 16, 18. Two sets every week gets you a nice five, uh, five loading microcycles, which falls in pretty good line with an IRR, RIR of, you know, four, three, two, one deload. Um, so that, that, that's pretty good, but that's two sets per, per week. Now, if you're uh, looking at an, a minimum effective volume of 14 and a maximum recoverable volume of 18, mm-hmm. all of a sudden that's just one set per week that you're adding. If you're really advanced and you're looking at a, a maximum recoverable volume of 18 again, but a minimum effective volume of 16, what you might do is add almost entirely. You can you can add a little bit more load than usual and only add load and, and have gone for minimum effective volume because the more intense something is, the the more fatigue it causes and sort of. In a, in a theoretical sense, the lower your MRV drops, the more intense something is, the less volume you can do. Um, then you just through loading can can get to there and change no sets at all. So you say so 17 sets uh, per week and you go from a lower load to a higher load and that's your whole progression. Or you may do like two microcycles of load increase and then continue that load increase and do another two microcycles of one more set per body part or two more. So like a 16 and then a 17 you know, and, and each one is two microcycles and then deload. So I think Eric's and I, our, our approach, the closer you get into that intermediate and advanced zone, the, the more very similar things start mm. to look. For, for more beginners, um, I'm, I'm a, a fan of progressing the volume sort of when you can within a, micro, uh, within a mesocycle. It doesn't have to be done. The good thing about beginners is, you know, that's the meticulous way of training beginners. I don't even know if I support the meticulous way of training beginners because if I just want to be like, here's some shit, have some fun. Just get, get to the stronger, gym. <laughs> come see me when you're an intermediate. Yeah. Come see me when you're an intermediate is pretty solid bodybuilding coaching advice anyway. Cause, uh, but, but then again, you know, we could play devil's advocate on ourselves and say, 
by the time people show up as intermediates, they, they've hurt themselves so much and learned yeah. so many poor movement patterns yeah. and learned so many bad habits and training that you have the work cut out for you. I've, I've had clients approach me where I'm like, you're too broken to do what you want in the yeah. sport. I'm, so, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure Eric's had the same. So I think you know, there is uh, uh, definitely just, oh, 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 boy. Well, yeah. that's with dieting, especially that's a whole other discussion. But, but uh, so I think you know when people think about well, you know, so Eric and Mike approach things really differently. I think in a in a particular situation, uh, we actually approach things very similarly. Uh, but sometimes we talk cross currents at each other because we're referencing sort of different. And, and I think most people know by now that when when Jared Feather and I speak, we're talking about taking humans and treating them like machines. Like you want to be as jacked as possible, great input output. Here we go. Uh, Eric uh, does, does a little bit more of the real world thing. Which has its own absolutely awesome value, but it's just not the similar. It's not exactly the same language we're speaking. So, uh, so of course, what do people do with it? They take it to YouTube and Instagram yeah. and be like, Israel is fucking retarded and, and psycho, and he's drugged to the gills, and he just wants to kill everyone with his training. Or they're like, Eric Helms is a fucking pussy, and he doesn't know how to train hard. And you're just like, okay, you missed everything valuable we ever said. You're doing great. You're doing great. You know, as long as you get to insult people on the internet, really, what do you need, even need size for? Yeah, I think the further you, uh, you know, detract yourself from the specific language that you guys uh, use, and this is something I've definitely come to realize over the course of time in, you know, trying to interpret and then apply in my own practice, you know, the uh, advice and recommendations you guys have outlined is that, you know, when we start with someone, um, like Eric was saying, you know, we need to progress them by adding volume. Um, because that's going to be the primary reason that they've stopped progressing. But then over time, like Mike was saying, you know, there's only so much volume through uh, you know sets uh, that we can add, and therefore you know things become a little bit more stagnant in terms of the adding sets, uh, you know, as a means of progression, and things become a little more nuanced. So yeah, Eric, is there anything that you'd like to further on what Mike has outlined? No, I largely agree, and I, I liked how you pointed out that um, pushing closer to failure or using a heavier load will change the amount of volume that maximally stresses you or becomes inappropriate or counterproductive. And I think it's always a catch-22 when you're a content producer like Mike or I. Um, like there is value in giving people a number of sets that, that, that gets them in the right ballpark, and it's probably better than just reading uh, muscle mag, although we're in an era now where magazines are all dying away. We're just, okay, following the Instagram account of your favorite Jack person <laughs> and then doing what they do. You took the um, words right out of my mouth. <laughs> it's the equivalent these days, right? Um, and I mean that disparagingly, just in case anybody wasn't clear. <laughs> like, you shouldn't do that, um, except for entertainment. So, yeah, just copying someone because they're jacked, whether you saw them in a magazine or in these days on Instagram, is going to be further from what's appropriate for you than using some of the guidelines Mike's talking about. At the same time, uh, the guidelines can't be right for everyone because they're not, because everyone's different. And if you aren't a critical thinker, you could assume that a set of 15 to an RPE of 5 on leg extensions is just as effective as a 3 rep max on squats for, for quads. Or, or not as necessarily as effective, but has the same stress and recovery requirements. And it absolutely does not. Brad Schoenfeld's paper showed that, Eric. Don't you read abstracts or even just titles of papers? <laughs> exactly. I, I need to read more, more of uh, the abstracts and less of the full text. Um, I'm just reading so, titles at this point. 
Well, you know, it's it's the simplest information wins. So that's it. Um, so sex, good or bad, you know? Um. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Okay, sorry. I'm sorry. I gotta say this. Amazing Brad Schoenfeld Facebook interaction, volume five hundred and eighty-one. Brad writes a a technical critique or just a uh, call it critique, a technical addition to the very, very interesting debate on damage and muscle muscle growth. Okay, And uh, this guy, I'm sure with all due very good intent, goes, hey, Brad, I read your paper and I can't make heads or tails of it because I just don't understand the technical language. Can you rephrase it with no technical language? And Brad just goes, just read the title, man. (laughs) (laughs) It's like muscle damage. The jury is still out. <laughs> I just, I just, the first thing I thought is like if if you don't have the technical wherewithal uh, to understand why like what the piece says, you probably don't have the technical wherewithal yeah. to really put it into context. Even if it's ex- like if astrophysics is explained to me in plain language, I'll still be like, right, yeah. <laughs> it all sounds like Greek to yeah. me anyway. So it's just it was just really funny that you know, which is why I watch Neil deGrasse Tyson summarize things, not get on PubMed and look up <laughs> astrophysics papers. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's so, an important note for listeners too is that you know if they're trying to make sense of you know scientific literature as it relates to program design periodization and they're not well versed with interpreting it you know they should look to you know qualified experts and you know science communicators um, you know obviously whilst thinking as critically as possible and not taking uh, anything as gospel but you know not try to you know learn via a means that they're just not um, you know, experienced or knowledgeable enough to do so. I think that's so important. Um, I actually just send people, I, I have like two books I send people to immediately if they don't understand the stuff, but they really want to. I do Greg Knuckles' books, mm-hmm. The Art and Science mm-hmm. of Lifting. If, once you get through that, I send people to the Muscle and Strength Pyramids by Eric Helms and his folks. And then uh, after that, if they really Plugs. want to learn much more about, yeah, right, right. Um, if they really want to know like training at a, at a sort of like a sort of really overkill deep level, Scientific Principles of Strength Training from RP, uh, myself, James Hoffman, and Chad Wesley Smith. After you read Scientific Principles of Strength Training, there's not going to be a whole lot of PubMed literature you won't won't at least be able to contextualize. But like, if you reverse that and just start reading PubMed articles first, you can't understand anything, and you try to downgrade the scientific principles of strength training, you still can't understand a goddamn thing it says. Then you go the other way around. It's just going to be a huge pain in the ass. And I, I, the thing is, sorry to get a little tangential, but just really quick, I think people think like, man, if I just read the direct science, I'm the shit, I'm a scientist, I'm cool. Like, it's, it's a matter of what's effective. You know, like, don't just, you know... Like I have – this is a ridiculous hobby, but I have a hobby of reading economics literature. No friends. I got beat up a lot, et cetera. <laughs> but um, I didn't – when I started reading economics, I didn't start with like you know, uh, you know, journal reviews. I started with the most basic books on tape for economics that I could find and everything made sense. And then now I can read technical literature and be like, oh, I know what it means. But some people just try to go the other way around because it's so much cooler to link a PubMed link than to be like, hey, check out Omar Isouf's YouTube channel on hypertrophy. Like, I would start with Omar instead of a puppet link, but a lot of people think that's, oh, I'm too smart for that sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. Or get in the gym and actually learn how to lift properly and how to train hard. Mm. That's just a waste of time. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about you guys. I, I just watch videos about lifting. <laughs> Same thing. No, awesome. I think that uh, discussion was really, really uh, useful. And you know, now I guess I wanted to take that. We can talk about obviously rest periods and tempo, but I think that's uh, you know something that will have uh, less importance to people's program design than the things we've discussed. So let's move now into periodization um, to finish off 
uh, this discussion. So, Mike, um, you know, we've obviously touched on this a little bit now, you know, through the whole microcycle to microcycle progressions, deloads, and all the rest of it. But, um, you know, Mike, do you want to kick us off with what periodization is and, you know, the concept itself as it relates to hypertrophy? Yeah, so, I mean, the formal definition of periodization, which I'm most closely aware, is periodization is the manipulation of training variables over short and long time spans in order to get the best possible outcomes specific to the sport you want, to decrease long-term and short-term injury rates, specifically long-term ones, and uh, lastly, it's a three-part definition, lastly is to peak uh, your performance for when you need it most, particular competitions. So that's kind of the three-pronged definition of periodization. So periodization is kind of like this huge, uh, all uh, nearly all-encompassing term. Uh, and then programming is a sub subsection of that. A programming is kind of like a mesocycle view of mm -hmm. periodization, like sats and reps and progressions. Um, so uh, I think when a lot of people refer to as periodization, it is just to be a technical asshole, pedantic piece of shit, uh, is, is really phase potentiation or right. phasic structure of training. It's not, that does not mean the same thing as periodization. It's fucking close enough. So uh, phase potentiation asks the question of, are there certain phases of training that are usually mesocycle, measured in mesocycle length, which are measured in uh, weeks to months? Um, is, is there a, a way to assign, arrange these mesocycles to potentiate performances so that one mesocycle makes the other one better, makes the other one better? And over that progression, are there things, qualities that we don't want, such as adaptive resistance or fatigue accumulation or a number of other factors? Some of these are psychological, actually, um, boredom, <laughs> diet fatigue. Um, are there any of these uh, sort of accumulating problems that we need to um, uh, sort of address every now and again with their own phases, not just their own microcycles or their own light days and things like that? So that's how I would define phase potentiation as being a very central part of, of periodization in general. Um, does that sound okay to you guys or, yeah. or uh, as far as definitions that we can work with for – yeah. This um, conversation. Eric? Uh, well, I think it depends on what we're going to do with the concept of phase potentiation with regarding hypertrophy training. So I will stay silent for now. Cool. So um, the way I view periodization for hypertrophy training is that you should progress. The most important thing, as Eric already mentioned, is I think a longer term progression in volume. And I think that mesocycle to mesocycle, the goal should generally be to progress in volume. After uh, that, I think a problem slash concern that occurs in the longer term, months, is that you cannot progressively increase volume for super long until you develop some form of adaptive resistance. That you basically, you know, it used to be that, you know, 15 sets get you super pumps and crazy sore and all this other stuff. And now it just doesn't really do the same thing. And uh, it's enough literature to conclude that if you train with high volumes for long enough, you don't really get the same thing that you used to out of high volumes. Now, we know another fact uh, that we've learned in exercise science, and it is this. The maintenance of gotten gains, the maintenance of muscle you've accrued, requires a pretty small fraction of the volume that it took you to get there. Another cool confluence is that fatigue uh, accumulates over the course of micro and mesocycles, particularly structural fatigue, like literal microfractures and tears in your bones, tendons, joints, that they're going to fuck you up sooner or later if you don't attend to them somehow. So 
because we have this problem that volume stops working super well after a while, as well as it used to, you develop, I think, an adaptive resistance to it. One of the reasons, by the way, that you can develop an adaptive resistance to volume is that it's very likely that fiber type shifts occur over weeks and especially months of training, such that you have a certain percentage, let's say, spectrum of faster and slower twitch fibers. You tend to get a little bit more slower twitch the more you up the volume and continue to train at high volumes, especially progressively higher volumes. Um, slower twitch muscle fibers simply don't hypertrophy as fast as faster twitch muscle fibers do. This has been demonstrated pretty well now. now so they still do hypertrophy pretty well, but not nearly as well. So I think every now and again, there's actually uh, another argument uh, of, okay, so we, we're, we've gotten more slower twitch. Can we reverse that process, at least to some extent, to, to get some more good gains going? Um, so all of those factors, you know, the fatigue, the adaptive resistance, maybe some fiber type alterations, uh, lead us to believe, or lead me to believe anyway, that after some time, it depends on phase of training, or sorry, a training age. So if you're a beginner, you might not have to do shit for a year. You just fucking train for a year and you're good. Intermediate, maybe like six months, advanced, maybe three to six months, depending on where you stand. I think uh, some kind of lower volume, more than microcycle, is likely beneficial to both resensitize you for hypertrophy at the same drop of a considerable amount of fatigue. The good news is you don't lose muscle during that because all you have to do is uh, keep the intensity in the same sort of general heavy-ish range, 6 to 10 reps, 6 to 12, and you just drop the volume by a third. You may even be able to drop it by about half of your average and still maintain all of your muscles, um, something Lyle McDonald is big on uh, and is, I think uh, consider a very proper reading of the literature. And I think if you do that for several weeks – maybe several months, but that starts to strain credulity. You'd have to do it for that long. I think maybe a month is kind of what I sort of is my best guess. We do a lower volume phase, and all of a sudden at the end of that, you're much less fatigued. You're likely more uh, adaptive to volume. You can start at a lower volume again and progress in volume and, of course, intensity and all the other RR, et cetera, for months and months and months and, and, and sort of repeat the process. So I think my, the two big phases that potentiate one another, so to speak, uh, or really one phase just potentiates the others and there's no cross-potentiation, is um, that you know you incrementally increase volume for several mesocycles in a row, then you take a lower volume mesocycle to clear the air, and then you start doing that again. The analogy, and I think it's more than an analogy, it's, it's the same sort of process occurring, is that is what a deload is to a, a mesocycle is what a lower volume phase, and, and, and sometimes if you're really beat up, you can turn it into what's called an active rest phase, uh, which is, uh, you know, you, you train, you even might lose a little bit of muscle on that. But as Greg Knuckles and others have, have illustrated, as long as you've expanded your nuclear pool, uh, you gain that muscle back really fast anyway. Mm -hmm. So then you're just off to, uh, once, you know, uh, satellite cells are incorporated, they don't really go anywhere seemingly. So it's okay to lose a little bit and you, you still do better in the end. Um, so I think that is an analogical process to uh, a weekend for a work week, to a deload for a mesocycle, I think something has to be done on the macrocycle scale. Um, an individual that I, that, whose opinion I highly respect has brought a considerable amount of skepticism, and he's super smart, scary. Uh, Ian McCarthy kind of voices the opinion that, that maybe such a phase is unnecessary, et cetera. Um, I'm not inclined to believe that simply because um, I think that these sort of structures tend to replicate over various phasic lengths. I, I would be very uninclined to believe that you can structure a week in such a way that obviates the need for a weekend. I'm very uninclined to believe that you can structure a mesocycle in such a way, optimally or anything close, that obviates the need for any kind of deloading, whether it be auto-regulated or pre-programmed. And I'm very not inclined to believe that you can continue to train 
uh, with high volumes, high volumes, high volumes, high volumes, without needing some sort of several week at least break of lower volumes. Um, and mind you, um, uh, I think this is a process that can be some combination of pre-programmed, especially for junior lifters, and auto-regulated for the advanced. You know, I've auto-regulated the shit out of some low volume phases. You're like, fuck yeah, I'm going to train for another month. Three weeks later, you're like, fuck that. <laughs> low volume phase begins. There's your two beat up. You're doing all these high reps and sets. You're basically not getting a pump anymore. And you're like, what the hell is going on? I'm just not responding to this shit. And your fatigue is super high. Then it's time to back away for a couple of weeks. And, and I think this kind of uh, thing is is one of the, um, you know, uh, I, I, I don't put a ton of stock into this being a certain truth. But it's my best guess, and, and, and I think it's worth a try for individuals that haven't tried it. So it actually, one of the things that we recommend if someone comes to us and they've been cranking volumes for a long time, mm. uh, cranking relative intensities, we actually are like, look, forget you. You're not going to get results in the next month. What we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to put you on the back burner. You're going to do lower volumes. And it's a cool opportunity to get stronger, actually, because you can lift some really heavy weights and progress like that. But then when you come back to volumes, they seem to work much better. So, so that's my assessment of the situation for, for periodization. And there's other phases to be mentioned. Sometimes the need for active rest phase, I think once a year or something like that, other minute stuff we can totally address. But I think as long as you have that sequence of incrementally increasing volume with a drop, uh, every now and again, maybe on a sort of four to one ratio or something like that. Um, I think that's a, that's the sort of core of peer or phase potentiation or phasic structure, uh, for long-term muscular development. What do you mean the uh, the paradigm for work to rest isn't three to one, Mike? What do you mean? So like, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, 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 totally. If it's not three to one, then you're just insane. Four to one suicide. Two to one is you're not even working. I'm, I said that all wrong. Yeah. <laughs> now, brilliant, Mike. Um, Eric, anything you want to add to that? Any concerns or issues that you see with that, or are you in agreement? Uh, can't hear you. Sorry, I had my, myself muted, um, which will do it. Uh, as predicted, as we have gotten further away from some of the core principles and highest quality evidence, there's probably a few things that, that Mike and I don't uh, do the same way or see the same way or interpret differently, which I think is absolutely fine. Um, and I think the term adaptive resistance is something that I think is I don't necessarily agree with the way it was presented there in that it's kind of this boogeyman that comes up that if you do the same thing for long enough, it's going to be a problem. I think this is an inherent concept to progressive overload in that you're going to have to figure out a way to do more. And the reason why there is quote unquote adaptive resistance or rather a barrier to that is for two reasons. One, you're getting closer to the maximum adaptation you can make. So the amount of progress you're going to see is going to become incrementally smaller. There is a diminishing returns that requires more work to even get those diminishing returns. And secondly, there is fatigue that comes with doing what you think is necessary to get those, uh, those adaptations. But I don't necessarily think adaptive resistance is a separate concept. I think that could be a descriptor for those two things. But I think um, the reason why I, I take issue with that term is because it makes someone think that high volume training is a thing and that you can no longer do that thing because there's an adaptive resistance to it. When in actuality, I think what's happening is if you are training with a quote-unquote high volume for you, it means it's probably more than you need to grow for a long period, inducing excessive fatigue and becoming problematic. Because we do know indeed that there is a bell curve response to volume. 
Uh, we were talking about German volume training earlier, just kind of in passing. Well, there was a study done that was not exactly German volume training, but called it that. And they more or less had 15 sets per muscle group for these individuals compared to another group doing 30 sets per muscle group. And these were like quote unquote trained, like trained in the literature, like they could bench their body weight almost kind of thing. So we're talking about people who've been in the gym consistently for us, like a solid five months, maybe, you know, um, and doing 30 sets per muscle group is a crazy amount of volume for them. It's actually just a crazy amount of volume period. Uh, and, and not crazy, but it's a high amount of volume. Um, I'd call so it crazy. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's much more than most people would ever need for a prolonged period of time. And this was a, a multi-week study. Um, and the group doing that number of sets actually didn't see a statistical increase in lean body mass. Like they didn't grow, you know, but the group doing 15 sets did. And there were some other markers showing that they may have had some hypertrophy. But the point is the group doing half the volume grew more. And in my practice, I've certainly seen people come to me and I'm looking at them and I'm going, God, that is so much volume. And you do not look like Doug Miller. So how about we try reducing volume? And I've seen them grow. I don't think that was necessarily because they had adaptive resistance to volume per se. I think it was because they were way past what they could recover from and they needed, and they were, you know, if, if, if we're going to use some of the terms of what's the most amount of volume that they would be effective, they were way beyond that to the point where they were actually training so much that it was taking away from their ability to grow. So they just needed to simply do less. And I think sometimes people get the impression that if you have adapted to something, you've done a lot of something, um, that, that's kind of your set point. And I had a few people who were, I'm not a few, I've had many people over the years who've come to me and said, Eric, I know I'm doing too much, but I'm really worried that if I go down in volume, I will regress. And I think this comes from not necessarily understanding the relationship between volume and hypertrophy. So yes, volume is a highly correlative training variable that predicts hypertrophy response. But what is actually causing hypertrophy is the stress opposed on the muscle that you can then recover from, repair and rebuild and, and make it larger, right? Doing volume in excess of what maximizes that is only building your work capacity. You might be really good at doing a CrossFit competition, but it's not like, oh, now I have to do 30 sets to, 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 to grow. Like, yeah, if you drop from 30 sets to 15, you will probably not be quite as good at multiple set strength endurance, uh, recovery between sets, um, you won't have quite the same engine, if you will, but you might even get bigger after reducing your volume. So their, their volume isn't hypertrophy. Volume is a correlative principle that, that drives it. So I think that, that's an important differentiation. Um, I got to go back to my notes after that tirade of making some sense, hopefully. Um, yeah. The other one, um, I think he said Ian McCarthy mentioned that he thought um, setting up training in such a way that you have different phases and then deloads was probably unnecessary. I don't want to misquote him. Uh, what I what I sort of understood he said was that uh, lower volume phases longer than the what it takes to drop fatigue uh, don't seem to him to be uh, either necessary or logically sort of evident. Right. You know, the funny thing is they probably aren't necessary, but I think they're useful. And this is where that differentiation between theory and when the rubber hits the road and what happens in real life occurs. Uh, if you were to strictly look at muscular adaptation as a local process, it's not necessarily about disturbing homeostasis, but rather about providing tension to tissue, you can make that argument. But that's not what happens. 
You know, when you train in the real world, you're inducing stress everywhere. Uh, and psychologically to joints like, like, like Mike mentioned, et cetera, et cetera. Also, you're not getting it right. And what I mean by that is sure, there's some theoretical amount of volume that's perfect. But if you are an advanced lifter who is like we've talked about, the minimum effective dose and the maximum effective dose are so close, they might as well be touching. You know, if you, if you change it between the two, you're not going to be able to measure the amount of greater muscle growth you would have got unless you take a two year period or something like that, you know, and then and also you can cut that in half and maintain your strength. And the difference between maintenance and progressing is something you can't measure for like a three month period. So there could be a range of you doing 10 sets to 20 sets per muscle group. We'll just throw that out there as someone who has a relatively low threshold for, for volume that are all going to produce a really similar amount of progress over a one year period. So you don't get it right when you're an advanced lifter. You're going to be typically, if you're an advanced lifter who's trying to push further a competitive bodybuilder, we'll say in this case, you're going to be on the doing too much side of it, right? So even though theoretically, if you were doing the right amount of volume, which is a constantly shifting amount, you would not need deloads, uh, except maybe for short breaks, uh, like, like Minnow talked about in a, in a forthcoming podcast we had with Revive Stronger that's auto-regulated or you know, you could shift exercises to reduce joint stress, or you could find some way toward that wasn't necessary to take a full mesocycle of recovery. The reality is, is that you're going to be typically inducing much more fatigue as an advanced lifter trying to become more advanced uh, than you can recover from in a simple deload. And I do think that, and, and it's evident in the fact that almost every coach I know of high-level lifters uses them. You know, for example, Mike Tuchero uses what he calls transition blocks. Um, I typically have a block after a season's over that we, 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 that coincides with the recovery diet. When there's a recovery block. We take time off the big lifts that beat you up. Uh, sometimes we'll just, I, I get people a, a do whatever the hell you want week, literally. And if that results in no training, that's fine. If it results in you coming in doing curls twice a week, that's fine. Uh, because of the psychological and the buildup stress of everything, because you're probably doing more, uh, cause we're erring on the side of let's push it when we're trying to go from you know, natural pro to top three at WNBF Worlds or top 10 at nationals to winning nationals and then hopefully going on to, to IPF Worlds. So that's strength. Nonetheless, uh, I think that that even though theoretically it might be unnecessary, practically it becomes extremely important and beneficial. Mike, anything you want to add to that? <clears throat> yeah, um, I think that's all. Those are very much right on. Um, I'm inclined to believe that adaptive resistance is a likely reality. Um, it's been demonstrated in so many other pathways, for example, in uh, sort of the neurological, psychological uh, elements. Trying to learn one task over and over and over, you actually literally develop adaptive resistance. Shifting away to another task, often any other task, but especially one that conserves the adaptations of the earlier task. Uh, sees uh, after a while when I return to, to training the older task, a nonlinear increase in yield from that older task. It is not simply a really quick sort of a, 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 a retrieval of earlier abilities and then a resumption of this very, very difficult slope of progress. The slope of progress actually goes up. Uh, seemingly, some adaptive resistance has fallen off. Um, I think we see this with... Um, a variety of cellular pathways that have been uh, studied. We see this with uh, the application of pharmacological intervention. And I'm not talking about uh, special sports supplements, uh, anabolic steroids. I'm talking about like uh, uh, SSRIs, uh, serotonin and things like that. Um, 
Any drug. Anytime. You get, totally, you get dependence, yeah. yeah. You get dependence and you get your stimulative resistance, right? And that can take a, a not insignificant amount of time to wash clean. And it can wash clean. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, we know that the adaptations don't wash clean from volume training, right, from training, right? So once a myonuclear domain uh, is, is reached and you alter or sort of you get more satellite cells in there, we know that even with small amounts of training, we can keep the size but I think there's some level of adaptive resistance falling during that time. And then at the end of that month, the amount of volume you need to grow, average, forget about MEV to MRV, that average value I think falls a little bit. And you can progress in intensities and volumes again until – and for many of the reasons you mentioned, Eric, that now your MEV after four months is like 16 and your MRV is 18, where it used to be 12 and 20, right, because you accumulated so much fatigue and beat yourself up so much, the two are really close together. It becomes very impractical to overload. you got like two microcycles at a time until you're like, fuck, deload again, right? Um, so I think that that uh, I think the adaptive resistance, because it is available, in, 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 because it is extant in so many other biological systems, nearly universal actually in, in biological adaptive systems, of, of which the muscle is, is one that is both evolutionarily very old and very complex, um, and seemingly very powerful. Um, I would be I would be very surprised if adaptive resistance to any hypertrophic stimulus, uh, volume included, did not exist. Um, another example directly in the field is, is uh, the example of exercise deletion and replacement. And that's kind of a combination of neurological and um, physiological factors that if you squat, 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 squat for a while, squats just don't give it to you like they used to. Uh, now, part of that is absolutely, like you said, Eric, from a long term, they're never going to give it to you like they used to back when you were, you know, three months of training age, right? But uh, if you take away squats and do leg presses for a month or two, you come back to squats um, then they're going to work non-linearly better than they did in the last couple of months leading up to that um, uh, because there will be some more novelty generated to some controlled extent. I think novelty is a stimulative benefit that absolutely can be abused <laughs> if you're, uh, you know, such a thing as too much novelty because we take away directed adaptation, right? If you're doing, just coming in the gym and be like, fuck, do leg extensions today, brother, sets of 100, then next time we'll do leg presses, then hack watts, then we're just going to run into cars or whatever. Uh, yeah, for sure that's too much, but I think some variation. Um, and I think uh, Ian and I also clash on exercise selection type of stuff. I do think that you need to do some exercises, especially in hypertrophy because there's so many angles and parts of the muscle to develop. The exercises for several mesocycles on end, progressively loading them in both weight and volume and relative intensity, and, and then switch the exercises, it, maybe not completely, but to some extent, pick a new batch of still very effective exercises, like you get away from doing a ton of high bar squats and very few hack squats to plenty of hack squats, lots of leg presses, maybe a little bit of high bar squatting. I think if you change that, then you get some really, really good growth from that. And then when you go back to squats, uh, again, I think you see some nonlinear improvements uh, in that adaptation um, Ian tends to disagree with that and, uh, for, you know, his own reasons, but, but I, I really do think, and of, of course, like Eric said, the, the, the direct literature on this adaptive resistance system, you know, you have to have advanced athletes for this, first of all, or sufficiently advanced and, or a study that runs, uh, you know, six months to, uh, years, uh, there's no such studies, unfortunately, but, um, I really do think that we need a separate society where they think that they're real people, but they're in a bubble and uh, their exclusive purpose is to run training methodology experiments and, and, and they go to work and they think that training is their work and um, boy, you could do a lot of stuff, civil rights and all that stuff, autonomy, willpower, whatever. I'm not interested in that. Sports science needs to fool the world. And I leave you with that. <laughs> this is why we have ethics boards. <laughs> <laughs> to get in the way of such grandiose plans, Eric, yes. I agree. Absolutely. <laughs>
to hold us back as a society. Um, are we good on time, Jake? Can I respond? Yeah, to I don't want to. For sure. Okay. Yeah, I think this is one of those funny things where I, in in theory, I agree, but I think this is why I, you'll often hear me say that hypertrophy is not a direct adaptation. And what the hell I mean by that is that it's not something that's part of evolutionary biology. I don't think maybe, maybe it, you know, it, it does play some role. I think it is a side effect of having more muscular endurance and getting stronger. Uh, and because in hypertrophy training, you're essentially training for both in some degree, you're using progressively heavier loads, but also training across the spectrum of load ranges and increasing the total volume of work you do and therefore the work capacity. Um, there's more inherent variation that perhaps we give credit to. And this is because we think, in schemas, we think in categories. We think I'm training for hypertrophy. So if I keep training in this way for hypertrophy, I'm going to get adaptive resistance to that. But in reality, training for hypertrophy actually means you're doing leg extension, squat, leg press, and sets of four and sets of 20, um, sometimes not in, in the same week. So I think there is, unless you take a very strict, like block kind of approach where I'm only going to do tens this week or that this month on, on squats, uh, and then I'm gonna switch to leg extensions and only do 20s. I think the reality of whether or not you'd be, you'd be developing that same kind of level of adaptive resistance we see in growth or in neuroscience, uh, I, I don't think it's gonna be as much of an issue as it, it could be in other areas. So while of course, this is, I agree that this is a, just the way the body works, you know, in feedback loops and in um, developing resistance to a perceived stressor. I don't know how applicable it is to this specific caveat of training for hypertrophy. Uh, because of that, um, I'm, I'm, I mean, you could create a training paradigm where it would become a problem, but I don't know that that would be a good training paradigm in the first place, if that makes sense. Um, and the other thing I would say is something I forgot it was related to something that Ian said that I now cannot remember, so I'll just stop there. No, that's totally fine. I think that, uh, yeah, we've, we've touched. Get Ian on here. Where are you at, Ian? All right. We're looking you for you, baby. <laughs> no, no, no. That, that's uh, a good way to end uh, the periodization chat there. One final thing I wanted to discuss, and I guess this is a little bit more of a personal uh, question I, you know, had for you guys. Um, I know, Mike's. <laughs> I'm in the middle of the Kinsey scale. Oh, what was the question? I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't hear. <laughs> no, no, no I, have, I haven't answered just yet. No, it was uh, in oh, relation yeah. Take to... Take that part out. In relation to overreaching and the necessity mm -hmm. for overreaching uh, for hypertrophy. We've obviously seen... Uh, you know, in the literature that there is some benefit for strength and neurological adaptations. Um, but we, you know, that's even, it's all theoretical, you know, at best. Um, Eric, do you support, you know, the idea or contention that we should overreach um, to, you know, see subsequent progress for hypertrophy? I'm interested, you know, you know I, I actually don't necessarily agree with your characterization of the literature. Um, we have identified that there is functional and non-functional overreaching. Mm, yeah. But I wouldn't say there's actually good data to show that functional overreaching produces better outcomes than normal training yeah. that, is, that is producing an adaptation. Um, 
That said, I think for practical reasons, which I mentioned in my one of my last tirades, you end up doing functional overreaching a lot once you get to a certain level in sport because you don't know how much you need to do, but you know you need to do a lot, and you'll err on the side of maybe a little bit more if, if you're an athlete who's progressing at a high level, typically. Um, and you that's why we have to do things like like deloads and recovery, yeah. which then we see a for typically we'll see a, a at least a return to being able to train, if not necessarily a, a boost in performance. Um, the closest thing to study of this in the kind of field we're talking about is the the, the data on tapering for maximal strength. Mm. And it, it's pretty clear uh, that you know if you drop one to two thirds of your volume, roughly maintain loads, but probably drop your RPE. So you're not doing a set of five at 85%, maybe you're doing singles or something like that. Um, and then combine that or not combine it with maybe a day off training or something like that. And then have like maybe a very light explosive day before you actually compete. That's kind of a synthesis of like 10 different studies that will probably result in an increase in performance relative to what you were seeing in your training. But I think that is mostly, that's what um, I was referring to. That was what I was referring to before. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a scientist. Yeah. <laughs> No, you're all good, Jake. And I, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying you're an idiot. How dare you? I'm saying to clarify. Yes. You know, no, um, you. we see benefits from tapers for strength, but I think the majority of that is a is showing the adaptations you've made while removing the fatigue component. If you think of the dual factor model of fitness and fatigue, well, they're both going up. You're always going to see slightly less strength than you actually have uh, because of that. So that said, I'm not at all discounting the possibility that you can see a nonlinear rebound in performance or hypertrophy possibly from doing a lot of work and then doing a recovery period that could be better uh, than, than kind of your normal standard overload with, with not frequent but periodic recovery periods. Um, I would really love to see that studied. Um, and I think – I don't know what would happen. Actually, I'm not, I'm not going to even put, put, a, put a bet on any horse in this race. Um, but I do know that overreaching probably does increase injury risk uh, or burnout risks a little more than not. So at, at this stage, I think the standard practice of increasing overload and then allowing for recovery probably makes more sense than going right. I'm going to really jack things up because I'm going to get this, you know, three weeks to tell you what, I'm going to be so big. You know, I think that that can that can be problematic if you take that too far. And we don't really have enough data that can differentiate between what is just the dropping of fatigue and what's naturally, you know, nonlinear increase in performance. Mm. Mike, overreaching super compensation, take the floor. Sweet. Yeah, I'm not willing to um, bet one way or another as to whether there are true super compensatory processes at work with overreaching. But I will say the following, that um, as you train harder and harder, uh, and as your body adapts to that harder and harder training, and by the overload principle requires more, how much training you need to get better in any one unit of time, perhaps at the tail end of a mesocycle, may actually be more than what you can recover from. So you're, to put it in my parlance, maximum adaptive volume can actually temporarily exceed your maximum recoverable volume. That almost invariably happens with anyone other than super elite athletes at the end of their mesocycles. So, for example, the most you can recover from is 20 sets to perform again well next week. 
but at the end of the loading mesocycle, your MAV, maximum adaptive volume, sort of the best amount of volume to get you the most growth, is at 22 <laughs> cents. So, you know, what can you do? Well, we know that through the study of functional overreaching, recovery can be delayed. And at the very least, we know that compensation at least proceeds as it would had recovery not been delayed uh, and possibly even super compensatory. But again, like Eric said, neither one of us, I think, are willing to speculate on whether or not that really happens. With the very least, you still get those gains, even if you in the short term haven't recovered. And so long as you get a deload or some kind of time after that to really recover, you still collect those gains. What I would say is this. When you're a beginner, because of the injury risk, because of the fact that you are more likely to get hurt as a beginner doing this because your technique is likely to break down at very, very difficult uh, levels of intensity at very high volumes, and because you fucking don't need to do everything you can as a beginner because you grow anyway, I would tell beginners to stay the hell away from overreaching, and I think it's really, really counterproductive for beginners. For intermediates, I think overreaching every now and again is fine, but I wouldn't design a mesocycle specifically to elicit that. I would tell them to go to their MRV, and as soon as they hit it, or even close to it, recycle and, and repeat. Uh, drop fatigue, et cetera. But I think for very advanced athletes, if we take a look at sort of in, in just in theory, that tip of the iceberg adaptive volume being over recoverable volume may be half of the gains they're capable of getting because they exit that window of, uh, you know, between their minimum effective volume and maximum recovery volume so quickly that if you just never allow them to functionally overreach, you're missing just a good setup uh, on top of that, you know, we know there is some credence to directed adaptation, the idea that presenting a similar stimulus that's larger magnitude over, 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 over is really what drives the momentum to make sure that that, um, you know, adaptation is solidified when, when you drop off the fatigue. So, for example, you know, with myonuclear domain expansion, if you don't expand a cell's myonuclear domain until it needs to incorporate another satellite cell and then you go back to normal training or go back to lesser training, you just more or less lose most of that muscle and then your cell's like, sweet, <laughs> back to square one. But if you do get that incorporation, then um, you do sort of elevate a Dragon Ball Z style. You do ascend to the next level of muscularity. Got to put that one in there. And then it's sort of permanently, to some extent, yours. And, and because my nuclear domains always shift, et cetera, in a cell, just that, that driving of momentum. And also, you know, with, with technique, for example, when you're doing squats, how do you present a true lifetime overload? Well, you need to be very technically proficient at squats to make sure you're really getting the good squats. That may take several weeks of loading, but by then your fatigue is already super high. So our choice is then for very advanced athletes, do we collect on that very high functional overreaching, but that's a good fraction of our gains because we have very few gains to get anyway, or do we go stop it short, but cut off a large degree of our gains anyway, because we've cut off our momentum, we've cut off um, a big part of what we could get because that adaptive volume is above the recoverable for the very advanced. I just think as a matter of those constraints, functional mm. overreaching isn't some magical fairy dust shit you sprinkle on your program and all of a sudden you're proving you just have to go for it because there's you getting dick else from anywhere. Um, Great. Period. And like Eric said, just by accident, you're probably going to be doing it half the time anyway, because your shit is so close together at that point. So um, I think that's my stance on functional overreaching. Um, and I think that 
the people most interested in functional, I think the advanced athletes know intuitively what that is. They hate it, but they do it anyway because they kind of know they're growing from it. I think the people most interested in functional overreaching are people who have been training for three months and they think it's some fairy dust you sprinkle over your shit and all of a sudden you're amazing and a Bulgarian or whatever. Um, I think those are the, the last people that need to be doing functional overreaching. And I, I think uh, because for them, it, it's just trade-offs just don't make any sense at all. Yeah, most of the time it's people in my Instagram feed who maybe been training a year who are looking for well a reason trained. to justify. Yeah, in the literature, they're highly trained. Yeah, uh, it's people on social media who have been training not very long who want to justify something they're already doing of training too frequently with too much, too hard. And they're going, oh, I'm not being dumb. I'm just functionally overreaching. Uh, right. I found a term that, that makes me know what I'm already doing is optimal, even though I know it's not. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Now, brilliant, guys. And I guess just for uh, clarity, do you want to discuss uh, non-functional overreaching, overtraining, and like you know some uh, basic yep. uh, concepts related to that? Because we've obviously talked about functional overreaching, and you know those people on Instagram are likely not aware of what non-functional overreaching is. <laughs> so, for all the people for the last ten minutes are going, "What the hell are you saying?" <laughs> I should have introduced. I, I should have uh, thrown that yeah. in at the start. My bad. Can I throw that out really quick and then Eric can clean, yeah. do clean up for me? So uh, there are sort of – well, I think there's like four types of uh, sort of what I would call training past MRV, right? There's functional overreaching where you actually get a net benefit of going over. Whether or not that's a super compensatory or regular compensatory benefit is up in the air. There's non-functional overreaching in which you probably hang out a little too high above MRV for too long, something like two microcycles in a row instead of one. And then you do come back from that, but um, you come back having gained – basically one microcycle you gained, one microcycle you lost, you come back basically the same as you were three microcycles earlier. So non-functional, not an advantage. You just shit away a whole lot of time. You could have been relaxing, training miserably difficultly for no reason and probably long-term joint stress, et cetera. Um, mm. If, if you don't get hurt, non-functional reaching is dangerous for another reason is, is very few people actually, is, 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 it's called non-functional reaching if you come back without injury, but it's one of those things like you're going off to battle. There's by no means clear that you're going to come back alive, right? So yeah. it's, and, and the further you get away from your MRV uh, or, or any other kind of measurement of excessive volume or, or intensity or whatever, the likely, more likely you already get injured just when you're there. So non-functional reaching again, isn't, I just want to be clear. It's not an oopsie. It's a really bad idea. It's not like, oh, well. Like, no, no, you really want to stay the hell away from it. And you'd be like, oh, I didn't lose anything. Like, yeah, you'll probably lose something, though. Not an adaptation, but on your fucking kneecap flying off and hitting someone in the face on the hack squat, which is just rude because they're trying to do their own training and now they have a kneecap in their face, right? So, and then there's what I would classify as sort of like, uh, I, I, the typology is different, but it's sort of type one overtraining, which is where you depress your abilities so much. And this takes weeks of being a fucking asshole and going way too hard in most cases. That kind of overtraining is that within, again, weeks, that's like three weeks or more, or months, you do make a full recovery. And then, here's the big part, you get back into, once you've made a full recovery, you get back into continuing to progress at the normal rate we would have predicted for you anyway. Type 2, or it's a really, really bad overtraining, is when, and this has been cataloged, uh, you never make a full recovery. You consistently have perennial problems a lot of times it's expressed as neuromuscular dysfunction, joint problems, and you literally, and especially in the case of advanced athletes, either can never ret retain 
uh, never return to past high-level performances, or if you somehow manage to do type 2 overtraining when you're intermediate, which takes a whole lot of idiocy, but that's not short supply in the world, um, you never go back to the same kind of rates of gain we would have expected from you. You might gain again, but it, it's going to be, uh, for lack of a better word, debilitated. Uh, and, and that's really, really, really bad. That's the kind of overtraining you never come back from in a true sense. You're always fucked up. So um, I think that's my uh, knowledge of the literature in that regard. Eric, what did I fuck up? What did I oh, no, I, yeah, that, that's pretty accurate. I, I would just want to provide a little context to people who are lifting weights and trying to get huge and, and how much of this and it'll apply to them. I, I think it's easy for overtraining, especially that type too, like you talked about, these being, be seen as like a boogeyman, like, oh, shit, am I, have I done that? Um, the likelihood that you have done that uh, without just getting injured is incredibly low as someone lifting weights. Um, I see a ton of non-functional overreaching, which is basically spinning your wheels and there's no point to it. Um, and I see some uh, type 1 overtraining. I don't know that I've ever seen what I would classify as type 2 overtraining in, in just a powerlifter or a bodybuilder. I have, I have it in two distinct muscle groups in my own body. My pecs are permanently fucked and my triceps are permanently fucked. And I mean permanently fucked. They, they will they will uh, encounter maybe scar tissue based or something muscle pulls. If I do two successively overloading microcycles in a row, they just break they've broken maybe 50 times each throughout my training career after I fucked them up super hard back when I was in college. Would, would you call that type two overtraining or would you say that is a, that is a chronic issue in an individual muscle group? Cause overtraining is typically classified. In totally. A by I think I have a weird, if, for sure. So, uh, I have a weird local version of that in two of my muscles okay. and it's, just, it's, just, it's not a macro scale injury. It's undetectable by MRI. It's undetectable by uh, X-ray. It is a legit thing. It sucks total balls. But anytime people tell me that the worst thing that can happen with going too far over your MRV for too long is that you just get tired and then you're better later. And then, no, there's permanent shit that can happen to you if you're as dumb as me and you pushed it as far as possible back in the day. So rare, super rare, but the shit happens. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. I, I have seen the every time I think of cases of true overtraining that I've seen personally, it's either been in people who got involved in CrossFit while they were also trying to diet. So, and this is not a shot at CrossFit. It sounds like that, but it's a shot at training every aspect of your body with high volume, high intensity, high effort, frequently, um, and without necessarily any organization. To it's really CrossFit done poorly. So there's a ton of great CrossFit coaches out there. I think it's a legitimate sport. And, you know, more power to anybody who's touching a barbell, in my opinion. But um, I think when you come, like when you typically see overtraining in, in true athletes, not just us body pumpers, it's in endurance athletes, it's in, it's in team sport athletes, it's in contact sports, things like that. Um, so it's pretty rare in lifters. Uh, a ton of non-functional overreaching, like I said. And the, and the other time I, I see it is during prolonged or after prolonged contest preps or multiple back-to-back -back seasons of contest preps and bodybuilders. Uh, where you've really sapped them physiologically, hormonally, um, from, from being in a deficit. And basically, they're semi-starved. Uh, so you've removed their ability to recover and done, done a high volume amount of training. So this is not going to happen overnight. Uh, if, if you are not making progress and you feel terrible and you're getting repeatedly injured, you're probably just repeating periods of non-functional overreaching. Um, and overtraining syndrome is, is you don't even, you stop, you stop, you stop wanting to train. You know, that's, that's probably a protective mechanism, I would say, to get you to stop what you're doing, for God's sake, you know. 
So um, yeah, that's just a little bit of clarification on how it applies to us folks with dumbbells and barbells. No, awesome. I yeah, think that's a great way to wrap up. If you're injury free and you're lifting weights and ticking all the boxes that the guys have outlined, you're in a pretty good position to uh, yeah get jacked as fuck. So uh, we'll we'll leave we'll leave it there, <laughs> guys. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, if people have questions, uh, feel free to comment below. I will link in the description box all of Mike and Eric's work uh, related to programming periodization. There's going to be yeah a lot of links there. So guys, make sure you do your reading. Um, and your homework. Happy lifting, and we'll speak to you next time. Thank you, guys. We did it. Now, awesome. Thanks for having us, man. That was no, a lot of fun. No, that was good. Eric, how do I exit full screen? No, I'm kidding. I got it. <laughs> <laughs>